0: This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping, storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Fruby, and this week, we're in Connecticut.
1: From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 nest
0: days, and when you hear the call, you know so well.
1: Sisters, speak
0: It's Amelia. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast for our season two finale. I can't believe that it's already here, but I am so excited to share this episode with you all as this week we head to Connecticut where I talked to activist, academic, and museum educator Alexandra Thomas. Before we get to that, one final reminder this season that you can still sign up for the 50 Feminist States newsletter at 50feministstates.com newsletter and follow us on Instagram at 50 states. That's F-I-F-T-Y feminist states. Now that we're at the end of season two, I know that you'll want to keep up with what's happening during our season break. So subscribe to the newsletter and follow us on Instagram in order to make sure that you don't miss out, especially don't miss out on our announcement for the next crowdfunding campaign that will keep the work of 50 Feminist States going as we travel to the remaining 35 states in the US and talk to more feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. So again, subscribe to the newsletter at 50feministstates.com newsletter and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. This is also a really great time to leave that rating or review on iTunes. So if you've got the app open as you're listening, please go ahead, hit those five stars, leave a little comment. That'll help other people find the podcast. I really appreciate your feedback and support. So far this season, we have been all over the Northeast and New England. Just to recap before we launch into this final episode, we started out in Pennsylvania where I interviewed Masada and Brooklyn about their experiences of being queer and trans in rural Pennsylvania. From there, We headed to New York, where I spoke with Ashley Bohr about her academic work and her activism surrounding the rights of Palestinians and their relationship to Israel. We learned a whole lot about the history of those communities and then headed off to Vermont, where we talked about plants and the environment. Uh, And I spoke with Emma Merritt of Real Yard Apothecary and Lucha green an international relations and climate policy scholar. From Vermont, We headed to New Hampshire, where I spoke with the founder of a very cool business called Feminist Oasis, Crystal Parody. Uh, And we heard all about what it really means to create feminist community when you see a need for it where you live. After New Hampshire, we were in Maine with Claudette and Mickey, the founders of In Her Presence, an organization that helps immigrant and refugee women in Portland, Maine. A couple weeks ago, we were in Massachusetts learning a whole lot about magic with Lakshmi Rangapal and Paige and Cheryl, the founders of Which the vote... Out of House Witch, a very cool witchy shop in Salem, Massachusetts. From there, we headed to Rhode Island to talk to Samantha Puck of Fat Venture Magazine. And we wrapped things up with two fantastic episodes a return to New York to speak to Red about decriminalizing sex work and defending Alicia Walker. And this week, we're in Connecticut with Alexandra Thomas talking about her research on Black studies and visual culture, as well as her fat feminist politics. I really enjoyed the conversation I had for this episode. If I'm thinking back on kind of the different ways I've approached episodes in these first two seasons, I think that some are really grounded in the politics of a state and others are really explorations of activists that I admire and people that I want to hear more about their personal politics and how they live them in the world. This episode definitely falls into that latter pattern. We're going to hear from Alexandra about her politics, how she became an activist, how her academic work relates to that, and why she thinks we Should All Go Be Loud in Museums, one of my favorite calls to action from the 50 Feminist States season so far. Thanks again for tuning into season two. I'll wrap up at the very end with a little bit more, but for now, here's Alexandra.
1: Hi, I'm Alexandra Thomas. And um, I was born and raised in Bristol, Connecticut. And then for undergrad, I went to Brandeis, a small Jewish school in the Boston area. And I'm back in Connecticut now. And at Yale, I'm studying African American studies and history of art and women's gender and sexuality studies. And I'm a queer black feminist who's interested in fat politics and queer liberation and feminist black feminist contemporary art. So, I have a a very interesting entry point into activism because in high school I Bristol, where I come from, is definitely it's a mostly like a white working class town, and um, a lot of like racism and homophobia. It's definitely not like the it's not a liberal pocket of Connecticut by any means. It's actually quite conservative, especially especially um um the Trump a lot of <laughs> a huge amount of Trump support, like Trump signs all over the lawns, and um, I'm definitely I've always been a visual learner. So there was a lot of things in, in high school and just growing up, like the optics of things looked bad. So walking into a restaurant and all the staff are black and Latinx and the people eating there are all white. Or um, walking into the lunchroom and all the black and Latinx students are on one side and the, and the white students are on the other side and they'll be like whispering about like how loud everybody is on the other side and these type of optics that were just very problematic. And then coming to undergrad, it was the same thing, especially really a really important space for me is like the dining hall. And thinking about the dining hall has the black and Latinx women, often like older who were serving us food and when it would snow i would look out my window at like 6 a.m and see like old black women like shoveling snow at brandeis and it was just very horrifying to me so i think around that time i started organizing with people who were doing um labor work so i was thinking of like i had like this kind of group of like radical like white men who were doing like work um On labor, and then I had my black feminist community that I was growing as part of the WGS and AAAS, the the women's studies and black studies departments at Brandeis. And we would just have groups, we would go to the Black Lives Matter protests in Boston, we would go to um, rallies for like climate justice and for, um, in my sophomore year we occupied the president's office at Brandeis to have the school like hire more like black professors because at that point you could count the black professors on two hands at a school with um close to a thousand professors so um I think at that point um I I just became really interested in kind of like a a variety of issues, and I don't think I was really grounded in one type of movement. I think Black Lives Matter, like, will always be my home, because I think that's where the people organizing are most similar to me, but I was really interested in, like, these different pockets of radical work going on, and then my senior year um, was the 30th, Yes, I think it was the 30th anniversary of the Combahee River Collective's manifesto being published. Uh, they were a black, les- black lesbian feminist group in Boston that were organizing between 1974 and 1980. And, um, they released a statement where they're just basically defining their politics against racism, sexism, imperialism, and just really defining, like, the groundwork for a global, like, black lesbian feminist practice. So I think reading that senior year at Brandeis multiple times and also being part of celebrations around the anniversary of the statement really kind of just energized me. And I've come to Yale. This is my first, um, semester at Yale. I've come to Yale with a really keen focus on the politics like outlined in that document because it's just like a quick, like 10 minute read, but it really just almost defines like, Everything, everything that could possibly, and I, that could possibly be important. And I, a big part of it is like the idea that like every type of oppressed identity could be found in black women and black gender nonconforming people. So to liberate black women and gender nonconforming people, um, has to also be queer liberation and liberation from ableism and fat phobia and classism because like every type of, Um, Every type of oppressed group is represented in like black, queer and gender nonconforming people, especially thinking of like black people as like indigenous people and being like there are black Asians and black Muslim folks and just kind of focusing on that has helped me to like know like what my path is and the kind of like work that I want to do.
0: I always appreciate hearing activists that I admire talk about their influences and the texts and figures that they've read as they made sense of their own politics. I was particularly struck by Alexandra's reference to the Combahee River Collective statement. And I thought I would share a little bit of that statement with all of you listening who may not have read it before. Here's how the statement opens. We are a collective of black feminists who have been meeting together since 1974. During that time, we have been involved in the process of defining and clarifying our politics, while at the same time doing political work within our own group and in coalition with other progressive organizations and movements. The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see as our particular task the development of integrated analysis and practice, based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. As black women, we see black feminism as the logical political movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face. I think the opening to this statement is so striking. And if you're familiar with much feminist theory, you'll probably recognize it as sounding a whole lot like intersectionality, a word that wasn't even invented until over a decade later after hearing alexandra talk about how she was inspired by this statement and others i asked her a little bit about what she's working on right now yeah so right
1: now um i'm in a history of art department and an afam department with a certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies but i definitely consider myself like primarily a scholar of like black studies and within that queer theory and queer and trans studies and um the best way I can kind of explain, like, the work I'm doing is that I'm really interested in, like, vision and looking um kind of generally. So an example would be um I'm interested in, like, the circulation of, like, Uh, videos and images of black people being killed by the police and kind of like the damage that that does as far as like re-traumatizing people but when we've gotten to the point where everybody has seen these videos these videos are everywhere and things haven't changed and as well as having a black president for eight years and that's like the ultimate political representation that the civil rights movement fought for and having a black president in which the black lives matter movement popped up under his presidency and i think that i've come to the point where i I began being like disillusioned with like neoliberal like calls to representation because a black president and videos everywhere of black people dying that were meant to be that were circulated in hopes that People will see this, then they will care, then this will be over with, and then it's not over with. So I'm very critical of those types of calls for representation. And instead, I'm looking at um, the type of images that black women artists and black feminists and queer feminist artists are producing to kind of counter these other um, representations of black folks. And so a lot of that could be things as simple as, black women's sex scenes in TV and movies, or it could be, um, that are more empowering and then, or it could be black women who are, um, making collage paintings where like their bodies are completely fragmented and there's pictures of animals and ethnographic photographs and like all these different just abstract, wacky, experimental works that I think are people doing really important work of defining like a new representational language that isn't like trying to appeal to like the people in power for their freedom and is is instead just like experimenting with their own like desires, their own community care, their their own like community ethics of care and um, really just redefining what we think of as like um, visual reparations of uh, visible representations of black women.
0: I loved hearing Alexandra talk about all of the theoretical and practical work that these artists were doing conceptually. And I asked if she could share a few specific artists that she had in mind when she was talking about this new visual culture and these new modes of representation.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, Wangechi Mutu, a Kenyan-American um, artist, is I think she's wonderful as as far as thinking about, like, Afrofuturism and these just type of, like, maximalist, like, collages that kind of are pulling from black women in pornography as well as pulling from black people in ethnographic photographs. And um, so Wangechi Mutu, definitely. Also, I would say that... Um, Kara Walker and Kara Walker, so one get you to Kara Walker um Renee Cox who's a Jamaican American artist who's really like doing a lot of work of inserting herself into images from white art history which gets us at ape shit and Beyonce too and um yeah I work a lot on Nana Faustine who's a a black woman contemporary artist who's um, did a series where she's posing in the nude at different slave sites throughout New York City, and it's her way of like exposing the kind of like necropolitical histories of certain spaces, such as like Wall Street, which is also an African American burial ground. In that kind of work, that is still um, it's it's still definitely prone to voyeurism. But it's more like on their own terms and they're really kind of making this like conscious decision that like I'm going to do something incredibly like provocative and incredibly just like radical that's going to rethink how we think about um, representation. I think especially a lot of it comes from. I mean, there's obviously, like, a history in the country of, especially um in, like, the 60s through 80s, we have, like, black women being really committed to, like, a politics respectability as far as wanting to kind of cover up a lot and wanting to perform, like, white, elite, middle class, like, sensibilities in order to protect themselves from violence. I think the artists I look at definitely are breaking away from that tradition and are really kind of... um Understanding that whether not, whether they're modest and whether they're um, conservative and respectable or whether they're um, completely just doing like the most provocative things possible anti-black and sexist violence exists either way mm-hmm. so for them they would rather kind of have these political messages that are based in um, more experimental and like often sexy ways of presenting themselves that feel empowering to them because they're just like they're often like doing things that have never before been done I mean they're really really pioneering uh, kind of like a new visualization language that's working with um yeah like the black female nude or, or like really just really experimental modes
0: i really loved how alexandra included beyonce among artists like kara walker and renee cox when discussing how black women and black folks are pioneering new visual modes in our culture i asked if she could talk a little bit more about beyonce's music video for Ape Shit and the role that she sees it playing in u.s culture at large
1: yeah so that was very very exciting moment for me because um around the time that ape shit came out i had just finished a like a year and a half project on looking at black women's interventions into the history the western history of art and science and it was a very like solo project. It was just me and then also my advisors. And I wasn't really tweeting about a lot tweeting a lot about it or like in conversation with my activist friends. It was just a very much like me in the books reading and writing. And it was pretty successful. Like I won the award for the social sciences at my school for it. Only probably a handful of people had the chance to read it. It was just this very, very academic project. And then I just woke up this morning to a bunch woke up one morning to a bunch of messages of people being like Beyonce did a music video for Ape Shit in the Louvre and everybody was just like this is your work like this is what you do like it's a black woman in the Louvre like it was this very like exciting moment and I was like wow like I had just kind of prepared for this moment by doing the work I was interested in so I watched the music video and was just completely so so just really incredibly interested and it's not i mean i should say that it's i'm also very like critical of like art history and performance studies ability to like like i don't necessarily see the music video as like liberating folks but I'm very interested in the kind of dynamics that are in play there so I don't want my excitement to to come off like oh this saved the world because I don't think it saved the world but I think it's just like there's a lot there that's useful to think through so what happened was I immediately when I saw the video I thought about Faith Ringgold an African American artist from Harlem who had these quilts that she was using and painted quilts and one of them was of like black girls and the the name of it is like dancing in the Louvre so of course I thought of that immediately so I tweeted that and then um, time magazine reached out to me after that tweet had gone viral and when I when I talked to them I was really just thinking a lot about like what it means for like black women to like use their bodies as a tool to make these types of interventions into, like, the history of Western art. And I think that there's something really powerful about that because there's, as I've mentioned before, like, there's this history of violence. There's a lot of risk in using your own body in a space, especially a space like the Louvre or any Western museum that's really built to have these, like, romantic portraits of white men's dominance and imperial power and people go there to really just romanticized about military history <laughs> and all of these kind of ugly things that seem very antithetical to black feminist ethics. So for her to be there and kind of like reshape this space, claim the space, was just very, like was really powerful, I think. And also just thinking about black people's relationship to museums in general, which I'm also very interested in. And museums are often not welcoming spaces to black folks because there's this an idea that like the museum is for like the elite to go, and and it, it, you, if you think a lot about the museums you've probably been to in your life, usually museums you walk upstairs. I mean the Met, the MFA in Boston. These are museums that you you ascend upstairs before getting there, and that's I mean architecture is always political as well, and that's the that's based on an idea that when you step into the museum, you're stepping into high culture, high art. So you ascend a space to get to the elite, to the elite space of the museum, and I think that's incredible ableist it's problematic to consider something high art when these places have historically been for mostly white men artists and um and also entire collections from pre-colonial africa and ancient americas that are just stolen just outright stolen there's no other way to say it other than stolen for Beyonce to kind of, like, insert herself into this place that's really, really fraught with a bad relationship between um, the white male elite and kind of, like, everybody else. So I was just really, I guess, really just intrigued by that because I think it's also, um, it was amazing to see. She, I mean, she had all black women dancers with her. It's her and her boo, Jay-Z, just, like, really just, I guess... I think that also dance and music are are next to, so even though my focus is really visual culture, I think also like the experience of dancing and listening to music are also really, really powerful ways for black women to like experience joy and pleasure. And I really felt that watching the video. And just I made a lot of connections, of course, between like the art, like the Western art they were showing in the video, like the Negress painting, um, which is like an, an example of like because obviously women of color are in the Louvre's collections, just just in these very like specific ways of like white male artists who are interested in drawing like these hypersexualized like black and brown women, so they're there just in these very particular ways. So often really like against their own like agency. So I think that um having Beyonce in there with just like this whole like beautiful grand just like show of also, like, not really trying to adhere to any, like, respectability politic, too. It's not like she was there to curate an exhibition on... African American portraiture from the 20s. I mean, she was there to dance and to, and to just, um, and also to, to rap too, because I mean, Beyonce's a pop singer, or whatever, but I mean, she's also rapping on ape shit too, and I think that it's, it's really wonderful. That's also exciting to me because I feel like a lot of, like, especially like little black girls who like love Beyonce get to watch this video where like they see themselves I guess represented in a place that they wouldn't normally be represented. And also understanding that there's not that, like, these ideas that, like, oh, Western art is, like, sacred, and, like, when you're in the museum, you have to be quiet, which is something I also find so problematic, because working in museum education, I hear these horror stories. I also work in museum education. I should have mentioned that. Um, I hear these horror stories of, like, black students who will come into the museum, and then, like, the workers at the museum will say, like, oh, they, they sound like animals, because they'll be too loud. But... As Beyonce has showed, too, being loud in a museum doesn't hurt the art. (laughs) I mean, it's not... Being loud is not going to hurt a painting, you know? But I think there's all these weird, like, respectability politics around, like, how you need to act in a museum, and you have to just, like, not... You have to, like, not move around too much. You can't flail your arms because you could hit something, and you can't, like, be loud. You've got to whisper. And then to see, like... Beyonce doing exactly everything that you're technically not supposed to do is really breaking a boundary because I think it's problematic to to treat art like it's just sacred and like you need to be so quiet and like in awe of it all the time because you don't, you really don't.
0: I loved Alexandra's idea of dancing in museums and being loud and claiming and taking up space there. I also really appreciated her emphasis that art doesn't have to be something sacred. It can be hugely participatory and celebratory as well. Now we'll hear from Alexandra about her activist work and her own fat feminist politics.
1: I'm part of like a pretty like robust community, like online community of fat, like queer and disabled black women and women of color in like Facebook groups and kind of like we, just like these, these, these large like networks of like fat women like across the world actually and just being in dialogue with them about like I guess, like, our relationship to our own bodies. And I think, like, a lot of fat folks who do, like, fat studies and fat activism, it starts online because I think part of me being a visual learner is just, is just recognizing, too, that, like, um, there's something about, like, being fat in public that, that, um, is such a, like, um, I guess, like, faux pas. I mean, in a Western society where, like, we are like so, so obsessed with like eating as little as, as little as we can and like being as tiny as we can. It's really hard for like fat people to navigate the world. And then already black folks are seen as always being excessive. And then fatness is, is seen as excessive. And there's all these ways that people are just characterized as like always just basically spilling over and just being too much. So I've met these like folks on these women and femmes online who were just really critical of this. And then that that turned into like finding people in the area who are also interested in this and kind of like having these like basically, like, these, like, informal dialogue groups of, like, fat folks who are thinking similarly. And I guess once I developed that analysis with other people, then it just kind of became, like... Something I was thinking through with everything. I couldn't separate it from my research because I was even like museums. I did a project my senior year at Brandeis on like the little cloth chairs and museums. So, I mean, everybody knows them. I mean, whether it's like a gallery talk, they'll have these little foldable cloth chairs that are not good for fat and disabled folks. I mean, they're like, Granted, I've never heard a story of somebody breaking them, but I think that's also because when fat folks sit on them, we tend to, like, not put our full weight on them and just sit really uncomfortably. So I would be in my art history classes in the museum, and I would just be, like, leaning forward on these chairs, and my legs would hurt at the end. And I would just keep thinking, like, what is this twisted, like thing where people can't like sit comfortably and like why are these things going unquestioned you know so I became really just kind of interested in accessibility of course things like flying too are incredibly difficult for fat folks especially fat folks of color who already have different fears about flying because of like racism and especially in the post 9-11 moment I guess just thinking about how like there's a way that like the world is just not set up to be accommodating to certain people who don't fit these specific standards and I think I became like not embarrassed anymore to just kind of like say it and I think the friends I know who are doing this work as well. I mean, I love Ashley Shackelford, who, um, is a black, a non, non-binary black, um, femme who's doing a lot of work around, like, fat justice and racial justice. Um, and I think that, like, those kinds of, those kinds of politics are really important because I think that, my interest in the body is also because the body is like, our bodies are like what we carry with us everywhere. For people to like be afraid that like if they're even just walking down the street, people are going to be taking pictures of them and posting them on social media and being like, making comments like, ew, I can't believe people let themselves get this big. And like all these really, really horrible ways we talk about our bodies. As like a, somebody who's like a, considers herself like a fat feminist as well, I think that there's a lot that fat feminism also gifts to like thin and average size women too because even like my thin friends if I hear them talking about like um like calories or like what they shouldn't be eating I'm always just like you can eat there's like this weird way where we feel like eating is like a more like there's moral choices you make as far as like what you eat in that way or how much you eat and like for me as somebody who has like a black like, low-income, extended family, it's, like, when food is not always something that, like, you have access to, you don't look at food as, I'm going to eat as little as possible. Because that doesn't make sense. Or, like, people who are, who have any kind of experience with, like, starvation at all are not going to view food as, like, I'm going to throw this out. This is too much. I need to get it out of my face. No, you eat food because food is what keeps you alive. So I think there's, like, these these communal standards among, like, white, like, upper middle class people that are, like, also often affect women because, um like, this idea that, like, we need to eat as little as possible. And I just think it's really, like, upsetting. So I feel like I often, like... I think fat f- fat feminism has a lot to give to all women <laughs> about like how to navigate the world in a way where like it's okay to take up space. It's so it's perfectly okay to have stretch marks. It's perfectly okay to like um to not fit into the size you were in a year ago. Because I mean our bodies grow. Our bodies like especially I, I'm obsessed with like stomachs. I love tummies. They're so important. They protect your organs. And it's just like the type of like I, I'm really just obviously like very against the diet industry because I think that there's so much research on how like the yo-yo dieting and the your weight going up and down is like incredibly unhealthy for our bodies whereas like being a fat person who just stays fat their whole life is like much healthier than being somebody who's just like their weight is going up and down because of like really problematic dieting and I think that yeah food so overall I mean food dance music really really dope provocative art are are all just really amazing things that I think feminists should, uh, I think that feminists should care about. I think that feminist groups should eat cupcakes together. <laughs> and I think they should, um, go to museums and be loud in museums and <laughs> do whatever they want and um these are all kind of like everyday whatever things that i think are actually really really truly political so those are those are really my fat feminist politics is um of course there's like a lot of statistics on fat people's like relationship to like healthcare and kind of the fat phobia in like the medical industry or even fat phobia in academia i, mean, I didn't even mention like the desks at universities that are so small just not accommodating to fat people so um there's all of that but i also think a large part of like fat feminism is just understanding like fat people's day-to-day like struggles and like trying to flip that and be unapologetic but like the spaces that we need whether it's uh, being at a booth at a restaurant and, like, it's really, really tight on you and your thin front's got all the space, push the table. Like, don't be embarrassed to push the table, you know? You've just got to. And I feel like people should be able to claim, like, whatever space they need, whether it's a museum or it's a sturdier chair or it's just more space.
0: Now we'll wrap up this conversation by pulling together the many threads that Alexandra has already introduced, talking about blackness, art history, visual culture, bodies, fatness, taking up space, and also the necessity of always queering our analysis on all of these levels.
1: One thing I just would say is that I want. There's one comment I wanted to make on feminist art history. I definitely have been thinking a lot about like how second wave feminists and second wave like feminists, like art historians and film theorists, are like. Like really really they become like really preoccupied with the body and the body the body's representation so a lot of my work is obviously in dialogue with that and like indebted to that kind of work but I also feel like I need to um like kind of make sure I'm articulating a trans politic in relation to like what we call women's bodies too because even while I might use words like, because, I mean, one get moved Mutu, when I talk about her work, I tend to call it the femaleish form because she's taking these so-called female bodies and kind of, like, fragmenting them and adding in, like, all these other imagery. So it's I say female-ish um, to kind of, like, denote that. But I've, I'm very interested in also, like, knowing that, like, art historians should catch up with, with other fields like gender studies and black studies who recognize that, like gender and sex are both like recent constructions in that they're not they're not like everlasting always have been phenomenon like they're they're built they're socially constructed to kind of like regulate people and to put people in categories so they're easier to regulate so i'm really interested in like just knowing like what we consider in in art history as like or in feminism as like femaleness is, like, also very socially constructed. I'm just really interested in, like, how intersex and trans activists are really, like, intervening and, like, and um, making people realize that there is, there's, Yes, there's more than two genders, but there's also more than two sexes and that gender and sex are not stable categories. They're completely man-made categories. So, I think that's important because I know when people think of feminist art history, it's often like an obsession with like Judy Chicago's dinner party at the New York, at the Brooklyn Museum in New York. And this kind of like obsession with like what I call like vagina feminism often and I think that it's important to kind of like recognize that just because that is like the institutional like understanding of feminist art history that there has always been trans women and um, gender nonconforming folks who were producing their own visual culture that was at odds with that i mean obviously paris is burning is like an example of that and and even though that might have not made it into the canon of like art history and like even though it is i think incredibly important to it we have to kind of like shift our understanding of the body even as we like continue to be kind of preoccupied with like analyzing the body
0: Thanks so much to Alexandra for being on the podcast and providing such a rich and multifaceted conversation. I really appreciated her discussion of the work that Black artists are doing and that Black women and non-binary folks are doing to recreate visual culture, and modes of expression and representation in U.S. society. I also appreciated her discussion of fat feminist politics, which we've heard about before in the Rhode Island and Idaho episodes, as well as her insistence on the ways in which while we can understand something perhaps feminine, we always have to include non-binary and trans folks in our analyses. All of this is such an amazing way to wrap up season two in my mind. Thanks also to all of you listening and to the 119 Kickstarter backers who funded these first two seasons. I feel so honored by your support, and I've been so excited by the episodes that that funding has been able to produce. I want to take a moment as we wrap up the second season to thank each of you who supported this work by name. So I'll go ahead and read the list of backers from the first Kickstarter campaign. Special thanks to Taylor, DeAndre, Helen, Tammy, Sorrell, Kening, Jorge, Lauren, Carolina, Amanda, Maggie, Andrew, Tyler, Meredith, Aline, Scott, Lily, Aaron, Karen, Nicole, Jen, Rosie, Colby, Meritus, Carrie, Emery, Peter, Amanda, Julie, Ashley, Barbara, Jesse, Mary, Molly, Betsy, L'Oreal, Caro, JJ, Ellen, Mel, Kaija, Kristen, Hannah, Bart, Bobby, Bree, Jessica, Allison, Joy, Katrina, Stephen, Carolyn, Krista, Jessica, Mary, Jody, Emily, Mike, Katie, BJ, Emma, Kaylee, Vanessa, Elise, Nicole, Doug, Maya, Kelsey, Kim, Nicole, Maggie, Miguel, Sean, Meg, Alia, Nicole, Lita, Matthew, Marissa, Crystal, Kate, Josh, and Lexi. I could not have done this work without your support, as well as the support of many of the people who donated under guest accounts on Kickstarter. Thanks to you as well. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, you can follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States or through the 50 Feminist States newsletter, which you can subscribe to at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. That's where you'll be able to keep up with the podcast between seasons and get all of the information about the next crowdfunding campaign that we'll be doing to support future seasons. We've been to 15 states so far, which means that there are 35 left to go to. And I'd also love to travel to some of the U.S. protectorates and other colonized districts like Puerto Rico, and Guam, among others, so we really need your support to make that happen. Please subscribe to the newsletter at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter and follow on Instagram at 50feministstates in order to learn about the next crowdfunding campaign that will kick off in May and provide your support to keep 50 Feminist States happening. Thanks so much, y'all. For the last time this season, I'll see you on the road.
1: 50 Estados Feministas. I've Fifty
0: Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50 slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. Special thanks to Danielle Signs and Jessica Naria for our theme song. Until next time, Wild Ones, we'll see you on the road.